Welcome to another episode of Resilience in the Shadows, the podcast by Tent Makers. I'm your host, Alex Payton, and alongside me is my co-host and mom, Letitia Payton. Today, we meet a remarkable individual whose commitment to advocacy and reform is making a real difference in the realm of child sexual abuse awareness in the Catholic Church. We welcome our guest, James Adams. Hailing from the vibrant city of New Orleans, James is not just a senior treasury officer for a bank, but a devoted father of four wonderful children. Over the years, he has dedicated himself to service, having served on multiple boards within the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Notably, James assumed the role of chairman of the official committee of unsecured creditors during the bankruptcy proceedings of the Archdiocese of New Orleans. However, James's journey is not solely defined by professional accomplishments. He is also a survivor of child sexual abuse by clergy, an experience that has fueled his dedication to advocating for change. James courageously testified before Louisiana House and Senate committees, supporting HB 492. This pivotal legislation aimed to eliminate the prescription for civil action, benefiting survivors of child sexual abuse while also establishing a crucial three-year look-back window. James Adams is a beacon of strength and determination in the spirit of resilience. Today, our conversation will delve into the shadows, exploring not only James's journey, but also the pressing issue of child sexual abuse, advocacy, and institutional manipulation by the Roman Catholic hierarchy. So without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with James Adams on Resilience in the Shadows. So James, we're so glad you're here today. Can you take us back to your, I guess, early adult life in the church and what made you decide to remain in the church? Sure. Thank you guys for having me here today. Um, Basically, as I uh, was exploring my spiritual growth, um, the Catholic Church is just what I've known. It's what I've grown up in my whole life. And as um, I was a student at the University of Alabama, I was in college, um, really kind of struggled spiritually and wasn't very comfortable in the Catholic Church there in Tuscaloosa. Quite frankly, there aren't that many Catholics in Tuscaloosa. So the campus church wasn't really a comfortable home for me, and I have took that opportunity to explore other churches and felt quite comfortable in the Episcopal Church there and uh, attended the Episcopal Church with friends in Tuscaloosa until the priest made some comment about the uh, the Blessed Mother. I didn't feel very comfortable with that, and I think that was during a Notre Dame-Alabama game that was upcoming. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, so I, I um, once again found myself really without a spiritual home. And as I explored and graduated and returned back to Louisiana, um, just kind of really found myself floundering spiritually and started recognizing what it was that was important to me and in my faith. And it came down to the simple fact is did, uh, asking myself the question, is my faith based in a bishop? and a priest, minister, or is my faith rooted in Jesus Christ, sacraments. And as long as my faith was rooted in Jesus and the sacraments, I felt that I could comfortably go back to what was familiar to me, and that was Catholic Church, and the recognition that the Catholic Church was the only one offering the Eucharist. And uh, with my faith in the Eucharist, faith in Christ, um, I felt like I could continue to practice my faith in the Catholic Church, regardless of how sinful the the minister was. I don't think I was going to avoid that part, no matter what church I belonged to. 
So that's really the kind of journey that took me out of the church and back to the church. So James, that's a you 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 have an experience that a lot of a lot of survivors do um, staying in the church regardless of of what's happened. So can you help us understand what it's like for a survivor to remain in the church? Um, just with the knowledge that they have, what they've been through, how does that how does that impact your spirituality? How does that impact how you practice your faith, um, and how you relate to the hierarchy? Well, it's certainly certainly a struggle. Um, there's no getting around that. Um, I it's something that I personally struggle with, and my family struggles with uh, daily. Um, when you're you're you know what's going on, you know. Um, with the leadership of the church, even down to the priests, the local, local parishes, you know that they have knowledge of these crimes that have occurred. They know that they have knowledge of the cover-ups that have occurred, and it lends to you know recognizing the hypocrisy that's that's in place within the institutional church, and it really creates anger creates distrust so you have all these feelings and you're still trying to worship god right you're still yeah. trying to show up and um and be open to the sacraments be open to uh, the grace of christ and it's difficult to to put all of that out of out of your mind so you know through through prayer and uh just self-discipline, I guess, perhaps. You, you try and um, you struggle through that and push forward. And I'm not successful all the time, I'll tell you that. You know, uh, It's not like I'm showing up rosary in hand on my knees at Mass every Sunday. Um, it's difficult sometimes to gather up the kids and, and walk through the front doors of the church. Yeah. But just try and push ahead. So what made you come forward with your story? Knowing all those struggles that you have personally, I'm assuming this, um, you know, did it affect your children? All these different things. What led to you coming forward? Because basically you were one of those people who was in the shadows. Maybe everyone sitting around you at Mass didn't even know your struggles and the struggles that you had. So what made you or prompted you to come forward? Well, as... um as my uh, oldest child um, reached 10 years old, I started kind of withdrawing socially. I started becoming almost unreasonably protective of my children. Uh, I didn't want anyone around them. I didn't want them to spend the night out at a friend's house. I didn't want them um, getting too close to teachers. I was really struggling with even just dropping them off at school. Um, and the age of 10 being? That was the age I was when I, when I experienced the abuse. So, and this was really kind of subtle to me. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't really recognizing this. And, and folks who knew me would think, oh, isn't that, look, what a good dad. Look how protective he is of his kids, you know. And um, not knowing really that um, I was very serious about that. I didn't want anybody touching my kids. Mm -hmm. I didn't want them hugging them. I didn't want them coming near them. Um, and this isn't even included family members. I didn't, just didn't want anybody um, doing that. I didn't want to go anywhere. And my wife at the time told me, you know, noticed what was going on with me. Something was different. And she didn't know about what had happened to me. 
Um, so she was like, what's going on? Something's happening. You know, perhaps you need to go talk to somebody. And, and I did. I, um, I started falling into kind of a depression. And um, I went to speak with a therapist and met with her uh, uh, three or four times. And by around the third or fourth meeting, she flat out asked me, um, were you abused as a child? Did you experience any type of abuse as a child? And I remember my response being, yeah, that, that happened to me when I was around 10. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about <laughs> what's going on with me now. Something's, she's like, no, I think we need to talk about this. And so as we explored that and I came to really look at what happened to me, um, it, it, um, I was encouraged by that therapist really to approach someone within the church um, and at the time I was serving on a, on a board, which Archbishop Amen was the uh, chairman. And, um, so it was relatively easy for me to get an appointment with him. So I called and told him I needed to come talk to him about something. And that's when I just told him, said, look, this is, and he, I guess he thought that I was coming to talk about committee work or business. And, yeah. Um, I just said, look, I got to tell you something happened to me, and I'm really experiencing some issues right now. And uh, we met in his office for about an hour or so, and we and uh, I unloaded everything that happened to me as a child. Um, and the interesting thing that I found, I'll, I'll tell you, um, he, first of all, he was very understanding, and he was rather compassionate, and he really was well receiving. Um, I felt like he heard me. I felt like he genuinely had heartfelt compassion and wanted to help guide me through this um, and, and help. So at this point, there seemed like you were going to, you had been heard and understood by Archbishop Amen. Correct, yes. And um, so th- that, was, that was really um, the, the first time that I'd, I'd really discussed this with anyone. And this was, I think, maybe like 2012, 2011, sometime around there. And um, so he had offered to, to pay for counseling and stuff. And I, was, and I even said at that time, no, you don't have to do that. I've got insurance, you know, and take care of that. It really didn't want to make a big fuss. Make a big it. fuss, yeah. But, you know, what really I found interesting, and I thought about it after I left our meeting, because when I told him what happened to me, um, <clears throat> I mentioned the priest's name was Father James Collery at St. Anne's Parish in, in Metairie. This occurred in like 1981 period time frame, um, 1980, 81, somewhere around there. And um, he said to me, this struck me, and I thought about it later. He was like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know him, didn't know him. And I thought about it later because it was Monsignor Greg Amon who was celebrating Mass every week at St. Anne's during that time. He was there at the exact same time that Father Collery was there. So he actually did know him. It would be impossible for him not to know him. And he was also, Collery was also, uh, he was uh, from Ireland. He uh, had a very distinct Irish accent. He was charismatic. He uh, was really humorous. 
I, you know, it, you'd have to suspend reason to think he didn't know him or mm-hmm. couldn't remember him right. because they served mass weekly together um, for a number of years, at least two years. So, and that, that struck me as odd. I kept remember after I left that meeting, I was thinking, well, how, how can he not remember? Maybe I'm not remembering things correctly, you know? And I started like questioning myself and I was like, no, I, I think I'm remembering this stuff very in amazing detail, actually. See, so, and, and James brings up something funny, and this is just a, a, a quick little tangent, but, but James brings up something that I noticed through, through our case as well. And, um, I, I don't know if you're going to have the answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. During the course of a lot of a lot of these things, um, a lot of these cases, survivors always mention these weird little lies. And you just mentioned one. These weird little lies where they go, oh, well, I don't know. And they seem so insignificant. Because even if, even if Eamon did know him, that doesn't mean that Eamon facilitated the abuse or, or hid the abuse. I mean, we don't know, but I mean, it doesn't mean that he did those things. So why, why do you think the hierarchy tell these little lies that seem so, at least to us, seem so insignificant? But what, 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 why do you think they do that? What do you think the point is of these tiny little lies that really just seem so insignificant in the grand scheme of things? I think this is a, a, it's a very conscious effort to insulate themselves as much as possible from any connection to abuse, any connection to a cover-up. So well, I didn't. I didn't even know him, James. I didn't even know who uh, he was. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's okay. I so remember. I yeah, that makes sense. And that's what I'm thinking. But I, I've also come to learn, after dealing with, um, in particular, the uh, Archdiocese of New Orleans Archbishop Amen and a lot of his attorneys, what I have discovered is the simple sad fact is they lie just as easily as they breathe. Yeah. So it just <laughs> yeah. comes natural. Yeah. Unfortunately. It's it's very bureaucratic. It is. It's almost it's almost the same way we speak about like politicians, right? If they're if they're breathing, they're lying. It's 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 very it's very similar. Well, you, you have to keep in mind, especially when we're talking about the episcopacy, the the bishop. There's no one who's a bishop who didn't want to be a bishop. Yeah. And the only reason why they're still a bishop is they haven't figured out how to become a cardinal yet. So th- <laughs> there good. there are aspirations, and these yes. folks are are very ambitious. Yeah, their career, their career clergyman. Yes. Yes. So I know you had mentioned um, that you had wanted to re- remain anonymous as a victim. And I think you said you expressed that to Archbishop Amon. So what happened? Why is it that you, sort of like us, we wanted to remain anonymous. We had children who were under the age of 18. In fact, we had four who were under the age of 18. So we wanted anonymity because we didn't want, first of all, our son suffering was suffering going through this. It was all new to us. We wanted to keep our young children safe, but there was no anonymity for us. And it sounds like almost there was none for you. And how did that happen, that you became more of a public figure and then started advocating for victims? Yeah, well, in my initial conversations with Archbishop Amon, um, made it clear to him in no uncertain terms that I really wanted this to remain between us. And he seemed to want that too. Um, and I, and the reason why uh, I wanted it to kind of remain quiet is because I have four children. And, um, at the time my oldest was 11, I think at this point, and I had uh, an 11 year old, a eight year old, um, a five year old and a four year old. So I, I know the different, uh, 
entities of different things in the, within the world that are pulling kids away from their faith. And I'm struggling as a parent to, to raise my children in the faith, keeping them rooted in their love for God um, and making that a priority for them. So I just didn't want them to learn what happened to me and for that to become another reason pulling them away from the church, pulling them away from their faith, saying, you know, think, how could God allow this to happen? I mean, I love my dad. I mean, I can't believe the church allowed this to happen. That's a, I just didn't want that to become a struggle for my children in regards to their faith. And throughout this entire process, the one thing that has remained paramount for me, and I have um, discussed this with my kids, um, especially at the very beginning, that you know, this in no way affects their individual relationship with Christ. This, what happened, does not at all, whatever the church does or whatever the church does not do, has no effect with their relationship with Christ. I just didn't want that to be disturbed. And Archbishop Bayman knew that. He knew that was the reason why I wanted to, to keep this, you know, quiet. I didn't want to Right. to go public. So the the way it ended up ultimately going public is um, I had um, met with um, um, Archbishop Amon, I think this was in 2019 or 2018. Um, it must have been 2019, the fall of 2019. My oldest child was leaving to go off away to college, and my youngest child was just about to turn 10. And I had, you know, I never really recognized that uh, I have issues with, you know, there are certain things that may trigger certain responses and everything. Because I've never really thought of myself as um, uh, classified as a, as a victim, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was never really comfortable with that tag. And, but the reality is, yeah, it's a 10 year old child, you know? Right. So, um, I, uh, I I started kind of having more and more struggles. My oldest child's no longer within arm's reach. Now she's gone away to school in Washington D.C. And my uh, youngest child is ten years old, and he's wanting to become an altar server with his friends. And I'm thinking, okay, well, how am I going to handle this? So ultimately, I handled it quite, I think, quite well with my youngest. Uh, it's like, you can be an altar server, but I'm going to be sitting in the sacristy with you until mass begins. You know, I'll, I'm going to be there with you right. all the way from through. Protective dad. Yeah. Um, and I remember that's one of the reasons why he decided to stop being an altar server when he was in seventh grade. He's like, dad, I got it from here. You know, let, you know can I just go in by myself? Say, no, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to come right back here. <clears throat> It was after that, man. She's like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I was like, that's okay. That's all right. You don't have to. You know? but, uh, but anyway, so I went to see Archbishop Amon and uh, talked to him about this. And I said, look, um, can, can we maybe reach a settlement for these therapy payments and stuff? Because I, every time I feel like I have to, you know, go back to therapy, I have to... I feel like I'm coming to ask permission from dad. Is it okay? Can I have a little money maybe to go get to therapy? And stuff? Is it, I, I recognize that, you know, I could benefit from this therapy. I, I actually need it. And I recognize also that, 
you know, I shouldn't have to pay for it. You know, you guys right. have offered to pay for it, and that, that and I appreciate that. Um, but maybe if we could just reach a settlement so I don't have to keep coming back. Can we do that? You know, uh, can, we, can we get that worked out? And Eamon was a little bit taken back at that, um, but not, like, dismissive at all. I mean, it was just like, well, yeah, uh, how about you speak with the victim's coordinator, and um, and they'll he'll he'll work that out with you. He says I try and stay out of the legal aspect of everything, the settlement stuff, and just focus more on the pastoral care. And I was like, well, I guess that makes sense. I mean, he's the he's the archbishop, you know. He wants to work on the pastoral care and leave the details of the financial settlements and stuff to his legal team or the victim's advocate. Um, so I met with his brother Stephen Sinan, uh, who was the victim's advocate at the time. And that was a, uh, a, you know, a waste of time. It was true. Absolute fruitless. waste of time. I've gone through the victim's coordinator at the archdiocese before. Absolute seat filler position. Yeah. And I mean, it's really a position of, uh, of manipulation and intimidation because uh, we got down to the point when, and of Quite frankly, remember, you know, I'm, I've never been part of a settlement. I've never been part of a, any type of legal suit. And quite frankly, I'm asking for someone. I don't really know what I'm asking for. Well, I think yeah. that's a misconception people don't realize. When you're a victim and you're having to do this on your own as the victim, like there's no little handbook you can just go pick up that says, Correct. oh, I'm a victim. These are the steps, you know, that you need to go through. You don't have the help that you need and you don't have the understanding of what's the right thing to do. And you, when you throw this into a church setting, you didn't have Eamon sitting over helping you really either. He's just like, Oh, go talk to them. Oh, I mean, we can talk. Let's just talk about the love of Christ and, and all that is good. But at some point you have to address the other side of the issue. And I think people don't realize how big the struggle is because you feel so guilty Am I attacking the church? Is God going to be mad at me? You know, all, we were told that we were suing God. It was one yeah. of the things somebody mentioned to my husband. You're suing God. Hmm. We're like, no, we're not suing God. <laughs> well, you're right. And and the uh, and you do feel alone because you're, you know, I, I know that I was meeting with this brother, Simon, and, uh, and I even asked him, I said, I don't really know what I'm asking for specifically. I don't even know what a settlement would look like. I don't know where to begin. I don't know. What, can you can you guide me through that? And he would shrug his shoulders. It's like, look, I, I've never been through this. You clearly have done this hundreds of times, I'm sure. Is there, you know, can you offer me some guidance? And the Archdiocese has their own legal in-house counsel, Miss Susie Zerang. They have Miss Susie Zerang's husband's law firm that works from Jones Walker, on retainer, they have several law firms that outside law firms that are working and advising the archdiocese as they're negotiating settlements and as they're navigating this this process. I've got no one. You know, I'm 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 a banker. I know a little bit about finance. I, I don't know anything about legal structures. I don't know anything about contracts. I don't know anything about how the, a settlement would work with any any of this. So, quite frankly, again, I I don't know what I'm asking for. And I don't know how much I'm asking for. I don't know what would be fair. I don't know what I would need, really. How long would therapy last? So that's one of the questions the victim's advocate asked me. How much longer do you think you need therapy? I was like, I don't know. He said, well, why don't you ask your therapist? And I remember asking my therapist, and 
I said, well, how much longer do you think until I'm cured, Till I'm like absolutely normal? You <laughs> yeah, know? and you're ready to be done like right then <laughs> yeah. and there, and it keeps coming up. Yeah. He's like, I, I don't know. If you have a glass of water and you keep putting one drop of a grain of salt in there, at what point does it become salt water? I, said, I don't know. He said, yeah, I don't know either, and I don't know at what point you're going to be, you know what, I'm good now. I don't need to talk about this. And, you know, here's an important thing too, and I, I never – I can never tell if people are just in the in the hierarchy of being obtuse about this, um, if they genuinely don't know. But I think it's very important to call back to James's story that when his children were becoming ten years old, that was starting the trigger. So the question of how like how long would counsel? I mean, how could you know that? How you you there there might be some triggers you still don't know. I mean, I still discover things daily. Someone says something and it just it 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 hits me a certain kind of way. And when I was in counseling, it was the same, it was the same way. Cause I worked for the archdiocese early on and I would have to leave work because there'd be, I'd, I'd walk in and I'd see a priest with his hand around a boy and I'd, I would, I'd, I would, I would go report it. And they tell me, Oh no, he's just boom. That's a trigger right there. Dismissal every, I mean, there was all kind. I was discovering daily new things that were forcing me to therapy. So I, I would have never been able to tell anyone you know, how many, how many, how much therapy I need, right? Like, that's a ridiculous question. Absolutely. In retrospect, I'm thinking that is a ridiculous question. And for a victim's coordinator to ask that question. That's well, why I never that, know if it's purposely being obtuse or if it's just, which, and, and, it, and it may be just, just actual ignorance of what survivors and even their family go through. Because realize I wasn't abused, right? So I, I was, I mean, I'm, I obviously was very close to it. But so if I needed that, I can't imagine asking that question to a victim. I mean, they don't, how, how are you going to know? There's no way to know. That was a point I wanted to bring up is that, Alex, you are not actually a direct victim. So, James, you have children who are going to be triggered at some point as well by all these things. And I think that's a, a, a thing that people don't really think about is the family members of victims and how they are affected as well and even like alex says he sees a priest with his arm around a young child alex was working as a youth minister. i was working as a youth minister and it just totally bothered him so i mean the things for somebody to ask well how much longer do you need counseling who can tell that who, do, who knows that's a ridiculous question yeah, and, and i think you're suggesting that perhaps it may just be ignorance on their part it's a very charitable way to look at it and i don't <laughs> i don't necessarily think i don't necessarily think it's the case either don't worry <laughs> but uh, but it is it is part of it is part of the routine unfortunately um you know i i when throughout that process um you had you had asked letitia you had asked uh, um, at what point did I decide to you know, forego the anonymity and and become public with what has happened? Um, it was really not my choice. It was a kind of thrust upon me. Um, again, Brother Stephen Sinan and Archbishop Heyman were very well aware of my desire to keep this quiet um, and the reasons for that. And um, so as we were trying to figure out what a settlement might look like, um, I started sitting, I started thinking back to what Archbishop Amon told me. He said that he allows the victim's advocate to handle the settlement stuff along with the lawyers, and Amon just focuses on the pastoral care for the victims and help guiding them in their spiritual needs. 
And I thought, well, that's a great idea. Maybe I should should do that too. Maybe I should focus on my my own mental and emotional care and my spiritual care and allow lawyers to handle this part. So I approached a friend of mine uh, who's a lawyer and uh, shared with him in confidence of what was going on. And at the same time, he was also advising me and helping me. I was um, sadly going through a divorce at that time. So, um, and this is all intertwined, uh, you know, but um, after I explained everything to him, he was incredibly compassionate and understanding and, and said, um, I'm not the right guy for you for that to help with the archdiocese. However, I know who is. And he brought me over to um, another friend, uh, um, Richard Trayant, uh, to um, help guide me through that process. And so I started, I met with, with Ricky and um, explained to him what had gone on, what was going on. And at this time, when this conversation is occurring, I had just uh, been appointed as president of the board of directors for the Catholic Community Foundation for the Archdiocese, appointed, ironically, by um, Archbishop Bayman. Um, so, and this is basically the investment part, the fundraising part, development part of the Archdiocese for all the different ministries and the parishes throughout. So I, I'm thinking to myself, we, we want to just do a uh, work out a settlement here. So my conversations with with, with Richard Trey, and he was like, as compassionate as he could be, he was just saying, James, we don't settle with the archdiocese. They are, um, you cannot negotiate with them. We have experienced very difficult times and we will refuse to put any of our clients through that again. So I think to reach a solution that you're looking for, unfortunately, you're going to have to file a petition with the court. You're going to have to file suit. And I said, I, I don't, I don't really want to do that. I, I think we can negotiate with them. I think we can reach a settlement. I mean, I, I've been working within, you know, on a volunteer basis within the archdiocese for a long time. I know Archbishop Amon, I've known him for a long time and he's been very helpful through this process. So I don't think I'll have that kind of trouble. James, I want to stop you right there just to make sure that moving forward when we, as we move forward with this story, the listeners, the listeners get this context that you are not some random guy outside of the archdiocese banging on the door. You were in the archdiocese. You were, they obviously respect you. They obviously don't think you're an idiot. You're being put in positions of authority. You're speaking. So you're not just some random outsider, correct? You were inside the archdiocese. You have respect, I assume, in the archdiocese because of the positions they're putting you in. So for all intents and purposes, you are a friend of the archdiocese during this point, right? Would that be fair to say? Okay. Yes, yes. Um, uh, I would I would assume I was had yes. some bit of respect. <laughs> but the, the um, so I, I, I talked to uh, Ricky about this and and he agreed after consulting his um, his uh, co counsel saying, Look, we don't we've given up on trying to negotiate with the archdiocese, but we're gonna help you with this. We're gonna help you and I was very grateful. So um, I was like, Good, you guys have this? Uh, y'all can take care of that. I'm going to go about, you know, normal day-to-day life as dad, go about normal day-to-day life as banker, go to normal day-to-day life as the new president of the Catholic Community Foundation. We're going to move on and work within this ministry and go on about life. And I'm going to continue to go to counseling 
and life will go on. This will be great, right? Um, after our first quarterly meeting, this was at the beginning of COVID and uh, probably like March of 2020, um, we have our first meeting with the foundation. Um, and that seemed to go pretty well. We had Eamon sitting next to me. And um, I remember during that, that meeting, I had leaned over to him and, and said, uh, listen, I, by the way, I, I've got to talk to you about something else not related to the committee. But I'll, I'll give you a call tomorrow. Um, I wanted to let him know that, hey, I've got um, some lawyers going to be working with your lawyers, and they'll, they'll handle all of that, and we don't have to worry about it. So we're good. And um, so the next day, uh, I, uh, I was at, actually, I was at mass with my two younger children um, for school mass. And I, my phone rang, and I saw it was Archbishop Bayman sent it to voicemail. I figured I'll, I'll give him a call when I'm leaving. And so I got in the car and I called Archbishop Bayman back and told him, I was like, yeah, I'm sorry, I missed your call. But uh, listen, I wanted to talk to you about um, about something. And he said, oh, yeah, I wanted to talk to you, too. Um, I understand now you have lawyers. I said, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I got some uh, legal counsel, you know, very much like you have in-house counsel and outside counsel. I, I, I got some uh, advice from, from some friends. He's like, well, unfortunately, I, I can't talk to you anymore. Can't, we can't talk anymore. Now you have lawyers. We can't. We can't speak anymore. We can speak when I have lawyers, James. Just yes. when you have lawyers, we're done. <laughs> That's exactly it. And I, I remember I pulled off to the side of the road, and I was just like, wait a minute. Wait, wait. What do you mean we can't talk? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work, you know? We can't talk about anything. We can't talk about this. No, we can't talk about, um, can't talk about the settlement. We can't talk about um, the abuse. We can't talk about this. And it's like this. I remember just so no more pastoral care hitting the roof. Yeah, the 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 uh, the brick wall that hits with pastoral care is legal counsel. That's what I've learned. So as long as you don't seek legal advice, you can have all the counseling and pastoral care that you need. Well, you know, you know, it said, you know, what Scripture says though: let the children come to me unless they have a lawyer counsel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. <laughs> so. Uh, that's, that's basically what happened. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever yelled that much and cursed that much at, uh, at a priest, much less a bishop as I did on that phone call. Uh, but it was, um, I remember it was just being absolutely furious. So then I met back with, um, with my, my lawyers and I said, well, how's everything going with the, with the, uh, settlement? And they said, it's not going at all. They're not being responsive. And I'm sure uh, Ricky it took everything in him to, you know, to refrain from saying, I told you so. You know, it's, but he did. He, he was very, very clear from the very beginning. He's like, they're very difficult to deal with. They don't want to settle. They're going to obstruct, obstruct, obstruct. And they will, if they get you in a room, they're going to try and tear you apart. So uh, we're not going to let you sit down at a negotiating table with these people. We're going to handle this. But it was... Although uh, conversations from Archdiocese outside counsel uh, through Jones Walker and the in-house counsel kept saying we want to get this matter settled with Adams, we want to, we want to, we, we're, we're going to get this settled. 
nothing ever advanced. It never advanced any type of conversation. It never advanced to exchange of information. It, it never even advanced to scheduling a meeting. It was just passing conversations or passing comments that um, archdiocesan lawyers would make to my lawyer as they saw each other in the courthouse one day or something. So um, finally got to a point that um, I, uh, I, I, we were hitting this roadblock and I, after my conversations with Archbishop Amon, I talked to my lawyers. I said, you know, you, you guys were right. Just do whatever you've got to do. I just want this matter ended. I don't want to, I don't want to go any further with this. If you got a file suit, just do whatever you got to do. I just want this over. So they prepared a petition to file with the court in uh, April, and this is April 2020, and. I, um, they sent it to me to look at and I read it and I was like, yeah, okay. I signed off on it and said, let's, let's proceed. But then I called them later that day and said, please reach out to them again. Just one more time. See if we can reach a settlement so we don't have to, before you file this, please give it another day, reach out to them, see if we can get this matter resolved. And they did. And there was no response whatsoever. Just kind of just ignored it. And when they informed me that there was no response and I saw that through email communication, written communication, phone calls, nothing was responded to, I just told them, go ahead, file it. So they did. They filed it. And there were actually three, and it was filed under a pseudonym because, again, I wanted to protect my anonymity. And um, then... Uh, so there were three people, I believe, within the Archdiocese of New Orleans who were aware that the suit had been filed and they knew that it was related to me. Archbishop Heyman was one, the CFO of the Archdiocese, and Ms. Susie Zarang, who is the in-house legal counsel for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Outside of those three, no one else but my counsel knew that, it was, that this case was uh, related to me. The next day, I get a call from a friend of mine who's a lawyer, uh, also serves on the board of directors with the Catholic Community Foundation. And he tells me that, uh, uh, James, um, I know that was you that filed that suit against the archdiocese. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, come on, I, I know that was you. You filed that suit. I said, how in the world would you know anything about this. And this was, this is within 24 hours of the suit being filed. And he said, well, I have a service that notifies me of these things. And this particular guy, he's, he's not a litigator. He, he's a contract law. He handles estate planning and stuff like that. So I'm like, why are you paying attention to, you know, liability suits or litigation that's filed in, in civil district court in New Orleans? He says, so none of that made sense to me. So he said, listen, I, I think what you're going to need to do at this point is you're going to have to resign as president of the foundation um, since you filed suit. I said, I, I don't think that's necessary. I've thought about this. I mean, I can continue on in this role um, without conflict because the foundation's not mentioned in, in the suit. And um, quite frankly, it's a wonderful ministry that you know allows people to fulfill their philanthropic desires and match up to their, their needs and match up to the needs of the community. I, was, I felt really strongly about um, our work there. 
Um, but he says, well, I, I told him, I'll think about it some more and uh, I'll pray about it. And, but I, I don't really see a conflict here and I don't see a need for me to have to step down. So that was probably like a Wednesday or something. By uh, the next day, I'd gotten another call from him letting me know. He's like, James, I've talked about this with the rest of the officers of the board, and we're all in agreement that you need to step down. So at this point, there's no more anonymity. No, that's that's out of the window, apparently. And uh, they'd given me to a certain uh, – um, well, um, he had told me, my, my friend had told me that uh, either I stepped down by – this date, or uh, they're going to call an emergency meeting of the board and have this discussed and have a board vote uh, to remove me or make a recommendation to the archbishop to have me to remove me as president of the foundation. And he said, and of course, you know, that'll be public. You know, there are 30 members of the board of directors here. So everybody is going to know at that point. He made that clear. And then he, there was a long pause. And I remember, I'm just still trying to process that this is actually happening and being presented to me by a guy I've known for years, a good friend. And um, then he throws in there, he says, now I'm not threatening you with anything. You know, this isn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to threaten you. With anything. I say, that's exactly what you're doing. You're threatening me. You're going to go public with all this information that I have specifically requested. I wanted to keep secret unless I do what you tell me you want me to do. I said, now tell me again, how did you find out about this lawsuit? And at this point, it changed from him being notified by a service that he employs to, um, I'm not going to tell you that. I'm I'm just not going to tell you that. I'm never going to tell you that. I was like, I don't think you have to at this point. I think I know where you found out about it. And I think it's important for the listeners to know that this is, this James is not the only one that this has happened to. This is this is a tactic. Um, we were out it, and of course they, they said it was by accident, but we were out it, and it hit the news during my wife and I's first dance at my wedding. During our first dance, you could hear the KTC buzzes going off on people's phones who didn't have their phone silenced, and that was our story hitting the news during our first dance. So. There has been, even in the Diocese of Lafayette, there's been other stories where the diocese has told victims, you know, if this comes out, we really can't help if people know. And so one of the things that, one of the one of the blowbacks to being outed is that um, you you get messages from people. I got messages from a seminarian that told me your your family's attacking my my future bride, and and I I ask that you drop the suit now, and I'm like. Who are you? Like, what? Like, how, how dare you? You know? Um, but then, you know, people start asking about it. People, why would you do that? You start getting messages. So for you, this is about to hit you now. Like you, yeah. you've realized that at this point you can't keep the gate. And then I, I want to also put in there that when people ask why, why do victims take so long to come out? Why do survivors take so long to come out? Well, let's look at James. Let's look at what he does for a living, right? He's a banker. He has a. Uh, he's not just your. It's not the the lower the lower ring guy. He has a family, kids. Um, so you know someone else, and we'll address this at the end of the podcast. But I mean, imagine someone else in James' position, and and they're thinking about coming forward, and they go, "Yeah, but I'm going to keep my identity, keep my identity secret." And then they see, well, look, I I will not be able to stop the gate 
You know, like they're they're going. It's absolutely a tactic because at this point they can have the support of the 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 community who are going to defend the institution. They'll have support of. I mean, James is speaking about a friend, and I'm not making any specific remarks about that friend. But I mean, you'll see that through situations like this, even your quote unquote friends will start questioning you. Well, why would you do that though? Why you know? You, and these kind of veiled threats. I mean, we got. Our family got the same thing from people who ate dinner at our own house, right? People that we had over for dinner within a 24 hours were like, oh, I don't know if we should be over there with you anymore. It's like, well, what did we do? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what, because Alex, I don't know if you even remember this, but um, Scott got a call as, you know, deacon of the church. We, I don't even think we had filed the suit yet. And he got a call from um, one of the other priests in the church, uh, telling him that he had become hostile to the church and this hostile. was going to be a problem and he may be laicized as a deacon. Wow. And his response was, I did not rape any children. That's great. I didn't do this. How am I hostile to the church? This is not me. Did you call Father Gidry about this? He's the hostile one. So, yeah, it's, it's it's amazing how friends can turn on you so very quickly. And this taps into the main theme of this podcast, which is institutional manipulation and tactics. So, so James, you've just you've just you've exposed many actually through the course of our conversation. But this is a this is a big one. So so continue on. How are things now? Now, 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 you know, at least at least subconsciously, you know, now that people are going to figure out who James Adams is. You know what? What you're seeking? What's happened to you? So, how are things now moving forward? Now that you know that you cannot remain in the shadows. Well, at that time, you know, I, I, you know, I called a meeting with the officers of the board, and I explained to everyone. I said, "Look, this is this is utterly ridiculous." You know, um, number one, I didn't bring up any of this stuff to you guys because, quite frankly, it didn't concern you. It was none of your business. This was between me and. Um, Archbishop Amen and, and and the church when we were trying to reach a fair settlement that really didn't involve the board of directors for the Catholic Community Foundation. So this this came about, and um, they, by the time we finished that phone call, that uh, that Zoom call or whatever, um, everyone was in agreement that for the best interest of the foundation, I should step down. So I recognize uh, in the interest of protecting my own anonymity, I'm going to step down. So I crafted a resignation letter to Archbishop Amen, and I was very, very clear into why I was being step, why I was stepping down, and that I was being forced to step down under the threat of going public with this information of what happened to me, um, and that you know I find it, I'm, I'm, it's awful. I resent the fact that I have to go through this, um, and this is the only reason why I'm I'm, I'm stepping down. And so I sent that off, and that was accepted by Archbishop Amen. Um, I think the um, the following week, and the next, the very next day, I believe, is when the archdiocese filed bankruptcy, filed, filed bankruptcy protection in the courts, and um, so the letter went out that I had stepped down. The very next day, the archdiocese announces that they they filed bankruptcy. And then at that point, it was shortly after that, I had been contacted uh, through my lawyer, the U.S. Uh, the US um, trustee for the bankruptcy court, about possibly serving on 
the unsecured creditors committee. So I said, you know, I'll certainly consider that. But one of the caveats with that was you, by accepting that position, you cannot maintain your privacy. Your name is going to be in the court record. People are going to know that number one, you're serving on this committee um, because it's a public record. And additionally, they're going to know that you, you know, you you were a victim of, of um, clergy abuse. So that's, no longer going to be a secret. So I had to think about that before I agreed to serve on this, this committee. So then I, I, I remember the night before uh, I accepted that position, I met with my kids at home. And um, I think, you know, my, my oldest at that point was 19. She was a freshman in college um, or about to be a sophomore in college. And I had, um, another one who was going to be a senior in high school or a junior in high school and had two in grammar school still. And so gathered them all around and I kind of vaguely told them what had happened to me, told them that, you know, now I've got an opportunity here to serve on this committee that's going to help people who were harmed by the church. I'm going to serve in a capacity where I will represent their interests. And in addition to that, helping the church reorganize the way they operate so that this doesn't happen again. But in order for me to do this, um, you know, my name may be out there. People may be aware of what's going on. I just want you guys to know that this happened. This is actions that I'm going to be taking as a role I'm going to have going forward. And I don't want this to be, a barrier to your faith life. I don't want this to be something that becomes an excuse for you to not go to church, not say your prayers, to be angry with God, to be, you know, to damage your relationship and your faith. Because this is not an excuse for that, right? I mean, what happened to me years ago does not affect your personal relationship with Christ. So let's make sure we're all understanding of that. And Letitia, I'll tell you the the that moment is burned into my memory. When I had my four children who quietly listened to me as we were sitting down in the den, and they kind of closed in on me. My two older children were standing. My two younger children were sitting on the coffee table. I was sitting on the couch. And all four of them just grabbed me, hugged me, just said, we love you, Dad, and we're going to support you. So I said, is this something that you guys are okay with me doing? And they were like, yes, absolutely. You know, you're going to help people. You're going to help people um, get through their struggles. You're going to help clean up the church. Yeah, of course. I did warn them that, uh, you know, People at school, people at, at, at uh, the parish may say things negatively about me. They may say some bad things like, your dad's trying to hurt the church. Your dad's um, doing things to, you know, why is he attacking the church and stuff? And I just want you guys to know, regardless of what they're saying, that that's not what's happening here. That what I'm actually doing is to benefit those who were harmed by the church. What I'm actually doing is to help hopefully clean up our church, right? Because let's remember, it's our church. and We're going to have to take action to clean it up. So, 
if you guys are okay with that, then I will go ahead and I'll, I'll serve on this committee. And they were incredibly supportive, very, very helpful. So um, that's how I ended up uh, accepting the position to serve on the committee. And that's it's a long way to get to your answer. This is how I became, it became public that what has happened to me. Uh, the, the loss of my anonymity as I was trying to reach a resolution through all of this. Well, and it seems like for us, too, that was, if you're going to be, if you can't remain anonymous, then you have to be the voice for victims and you become advocates for those who may not have ever been able to come forward or speak for themselves. And and I want to make clear, too, I think it's I think it's important that just because you come forward doesn't mean you have to take on a role like Adam has or like Correct. Letitia has. Correct. But what's funny is that whenever whenever you do come forward, a lot of times your opposition tries to force you into that role where it's like, oh, well, James, what about this guy who once claimed that and it was false, huh? And it's like, okay, well, I don't – I'm not that guy. I don't – like I'm not, you know. So it, it's weird, but, it, but yeah, you don't you – don't, obviously have to take on that role but if you if you do um of course you have a unique experience unlike a lot of the victims coordinators right because that's another thing with with james's story you know it's 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 funny this weird dynamic going on because you you hear james speaking about talking with his children and he got very emotional so you notice something that vic for 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 survivors and their families it's a very emotional experience. So can you imagine all these emotions are going on? James has children, a wife. He's he's balancing the faith he grew up in and loves with at the same time having to file suit against the high. I mean, it's this big mess. And so he's this ball of emotions he's having to juggle. But when you speak to the hierarchy, when you speak to the diocese, it's a legal team, right? Mm-hmm. So you you have all this emotion. You have all this this interior fight basically inside of you. And then boom, legalese when you go back, you know, when you speak to the church. So I think that's a weird dynamic because I know with us, it was so weird because we would sit down and talk as a family and we're angry, we're mad, we're this. Then you go back to the church and it's like, you know, one, two, three sentences and lines and attorneys. And so there's never, you, you now have to rely on other people. And, that's one thing that I wanted to to ask, just because when we talk about tactics of the church or, or tactics of the hierarchy um, for survivors, sometimes I think, and of course I, I think this is intentional most of the time, a lot of other survivors do as well, um, but the, the weaponization of the community, our community weaponized against us right off the bat, right? I had someone stop my mother-in-law in Walmart in another town. In another <laughs> town and asked her to start defending my family's case against the diocese, right? And my, my mother-in-law's shopping. Um, I know Oliver had gotten Snapchats from people that were his age. You know, my parents, so why would you do this? So for you, did you have pushback, especially because it, it's probably a little more difficult because, I mean, you, you know, with, with us as well, it's not like we were in and out of jail and we were you know, uh, uh, we, we didn't have any criminal history, anything like that, like a lot of survivors do, by the way, um, as just their normal path, unfortunately, that survivors sometimes take. And those things are used to diminish their reputation. But here you have James Adams, right? He has a, a good job. He has a family. You know, you, there's there's not many things you can just like throw at you. So 
did you have an issue with the community? Did anyone? Yeah, actually, um, well, let me just first show. I, I don't know why my my life could have gone in many different directions. You know, so many people fall into uh, self medicating and addiction, and um, they they give up on so much. I, I'll tell you, you know, one of the effects was I struggled in school. Um, I drank a lot during college, high school. I uh, drank a lot in years after that. I don't drink so much anymore. Uh, but I, I can't say that I had the addiction struggles um, that many had. So I, I, I really don't know why my life went the direction that it did um, as opposed to so many others. But the pushback that I received was um, it wasn't even subtle. It was it's uh, never subtle. You know, <laughs> It was strange. You know, the, our pastor um, at uh, St. Catherine of Siena in Metairie uh, was a friend I, I've known since he was in seminary. Um, I was, at the time, I was I was part of the, the Sarah group that would actually help and promote um, uh, vocations to the priesthood. So um, I got to know him at that time. And um, he called me after I had accepted the position to serve on this committee, and then I was um, elected to serve as chairman of, of, of the unsecured creditors committee throughout the through the the, um, the bankruptcy and the constituency obviously that I was representing were those unsecured creditors in the bankruptcy those who had filed claims or would file claims against the archdiocese due to abuse um, uh, no matter how long ago it occurred and I got a call from my pastor to uh, Asked me how I was doing, how was everything going, and it was a um, um, it it was almost like a probing conversation that was unexpected, right? You know, and uh, in retrospect, I'm thinking, yeah, this was clearly a conversation that was encouraged, if not directed, by Archbishop Amen because. Our pastor and Eamon are, are very, very tight. Um, so uh, he calls, and he's like, how are you doing? You know, how's everything going? He's like, you know, I got to I gotta tell you, you know, somebody from the parish whatever, asked uh, with tremendous surprise, like, what's going on with it, James Adams? You know, can you believe he's doing this to the church? And I interrupted him at that point. I said, well, I hope you stopped him and informed them very, very uh, clearly that I'm doing nothing to the church. In fact, the church had done something to me, and this is a warranted response that I'm taking for the betterment of our church and representing those souls who were harmed by the church. Surely you told them that, right? It was silence. And then uh, he then followed that up with saying, you know, I think it would go a long way in your position now if you would maybe issue a statement about how how well Archbishop Amen is handling this um, this abuse crisis, and I said, "What would that statement look like? I mean, and, and to what end? Uh, because, quite frankly, the reason why we're in this position is because he's not handling it well. He's not addressing the issue. He's trying to silence people. The motivation for filing bankruptcy was not financial. The motivation for filing bankruptcy was to." Uh, cut off anyone's access to the courts and to prevent the free flow of information, which led to the abuse, led to the cover-up. Because clearly, as we 
are now approaching four years into this bankruptcy. More than 98.5% of the documents filed in this case have been filed under seal and with the approval of the court. No one can know this. No one, you can't know what happened to, um, to your abuser, how he ended up at your parish. You can't um, find out the information of who knew what when and what was the action of the Archdiocese of New Orleans as it related to your abuser. That's and I none think, of your business. I think most people are looking at victims saying they're causing the church to file bankruptcy and do not understand what it means. And it's just what you said. It's a way to hide all the information from this point on. Well, I, I kept thinking to myself as I was looking, it's like, you know, this would be so much easier if uh, the Archbishop would just agree to make all this information public, very much like the uh, Archbishop of, uh, I think it was Santa Fe, New Mexico. At the very beginning when they filed bankruptcy, he had agreed to make all of these documents, turn them over um, to make them public, accessible to the public through the university system so that these documents were uh, a source of really kind of a healing and information and, you know, validation to these victims saying, yeah, you know, this wasn't my fault. The archdiocese knew about this guy, and they still put him in, in, in the positions that would affect so many. So as hard it is, as it is to hear some of this information, it's really helpful to victims it's also helpful to the faithful at large because as a Catholic that has not been affected by the abuse personally, right? I'm thinking these people are, you know, they're interested in the well-being of their church. They don't want this to happen. They're probably very angry that this even occurred at some point. So their questions are, how did it happen? And until we know how it happened and how it was perpetuated, how could you ever stop it from happening again in the future? How would you recognize it if it were occurring now when you don't even know how it occurred in the past? You don't know what signs to look for. So the information being available is not only important to victims and victims' families to bring some type of healing and peace to what happened to them, but it's important to the greater community at large to help prevent this from happening in the future. And to hold the hierarchy of those in response, those in responsible roles, to hold them responsible, to have some sense of level of some level of transparency, to see how they're managing their personnel. Yeah. So, James, a, a lot of what you've talked about, you you have a very unique perspective as um, someone who is a survivor of clergy sex abuse, but also you were you were on the inside. Um, of the church in different positions of authority. Um, and then, you know, you, you came forth, um, came forward and then you ended up having to file suit. Um, and so what are, since we were specifically talking about the tactics and you've identified so many in this discussion, um, a lot of other survivors who, who are listening may be able to identify those tactics. But I think a lot of times your average lay person, your average person in the church either doesn't recognize the tactics um, or kind of been very naive about it. Like, well, if, I mean, I don't think they out people or threaten people with outing. That just sounds like a normal course of a discussion. What are some of the tactics that you have identified um, that were used against you from the hierarchy or from the community at large? And in your discussion with 
any other survivors, if you've had any, have you found that those are shared experiences? Have you have you learned of any other tactics to look to look for? Um, let's imagine there's a survivor right now that's a, that's about to start the legal process, or or is thinking about going to and approaching the their bishop um, or their victims coordinator. What are some things they should look out for? What do these tactics look like? What were they? Well, I would first of all just say that the initial conversations, right, uh, with the victim coordinate victims coordinator or with the bishop. The initial conversations are to, in my opinion, I think it's to discover the vulnerabilities of the individual. And they do this very subtly, and they do this very, very thoroughly. Um, what was important to me was was my children and keeping the, trying to protect them from um, having another excuse to be angry at the church or having another excuse to weaken their faith. So my my children's faith and my children's relationship with God was paramount to me. So that encompassed, I was all encompassed in keeping things quiet, keeping things, keep my name out of it, right? And right there, that's a vulnerability, yeah, I mean, right? That's that something is that, exactly that's right. That's something that can be prodded. So um, if someone is contemplating coming forward because of an, an abuse that they experienced or one of their loved ones have experienced, I would advise them avoid going to the church at all. Go straight to law enforcement. Go straight to law enforcement. Go straight to um, perhaps a counseling, okay? And talk through those, those areas uh, with your counselor, with, with your therapist, um, to help you manage and navigate this because it's there's a lot of ups and downs and you know the healing process with this it's like a roller coaster it's up and down some days you're having great days and you're feeling like gosh I'm I'm helping a lot of people I'm helping myself I'm doing the right thing and the other days you're like the world's against me I'm doing the wrong thing you know what am I doing why did I even open my mouth I should have said nothing okay. so there's you know that and that's just part of the healing process not only with with abuse, it's with, with any issue that anybody may be struggling with. But to think that you are going to bring this issue to the church, bring it to your diocese, bring it even to your pastor, and expect that there's going to be some positive resolution that's going to come out of that, I think that's incredibly naive. And unfortunately, it's based in hope. Right, it's based in your faith and your love for your church. That you want, I want to go to them and I want to get the help that I need. I want, I want them to be aware that you know there's a, somebody who's dangerous, you know, uh, working with children. You're being a good women. Samaritan. Yes, of course they're going to accept you and love that you're doing sure. this. Thank you, James. You should get you know that's 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 the expectation. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's that's not the reality. So I would advise them. The first call is to law enforcement. Second calls to a therapist, or vice versa, or simultaneously, but because they're equally important. But um, unfortunately, the archdiocese will fear, or the diocese will figure that that they have an issue when they're notified by law enforcement. Okay, they'll take it from there. You don't really have to involve yourself because, as the um, as a victim, you want to put um, folks of authority and folks with ability to affect some type of change and some type of resolution between yourself and the archdiocese because 
the archdiocese is going to do whatever it can to for self preservation in their own um, in their own administration, their own in the own hierarchy. They'd certainly circle the wagons around the uh, around the bishop, right, and around the. And what I've discovered is uh, they've they circle the wagons around the perpetrator as well. I mean, just recently in New Orleans, I think this past week there was an article uh, that spotlighted Archbishop Amon's love and admiration for convicted child rapist Father Robert Melanson. Uh, letters that Archbishop Amon wrote to him while he's serving a life sentence in prison and trying to get out on a medical furlough or something to be released into archdiocese-run care facilities. Um, writing to him, expressing his love and admiration for him, for his wonderful ministry. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading this, going, he's admiring the fact that this man put a, with this Roman collar raped an eight-year-old child? Is this is this what is this the admirable quality that our archbishop has for this man? So the the uh, the craziness to the the expectation that the archdiocese our bishops will do the right thing and protect those who have him have been harmed and reach out to them with loving compassion and genuine concern that's unfounded, unfortunately. Because that compassion, that concern, is directed towards the perpetrator and not the victims here, and it's been a consistent theme. You've seen it with Bishop Desitel. We've yes. seen it in New Orleans with Archbishop Amon, um, and I, you know, we hear, and I've seen the bumper stickers. You may have seen them too, that folks have. It says, "I'm thankful for the thousands of good priests that serve us." You know. Well, I am too. I'm thankful for all of our wonderful priests. The problem is I don't know where they are, and I don't know who they are because the halls of our church are filled with wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing. They look alike. And when the silence of all of our thousands of good priests, that silence is deafening. I, I don't hear them calling out their brother priest. I don't hear them calling out the bishops, when they know that this cover-up is going on, they know, I mean, walk through any of the, the halls of any of our seminaries, and you'll see what's going on there. There's a, now there, there's a facade that people, you know, that they, they put on for a lot of people, but the interior, activi the interior activity that's going on in the seminaries, these priests who are pretending like they, oh, I, I didn't know that guy was uh, into all of that. I didn't know that that guy had some sexual deviant behavior or something. Yeah, you did. Y'all lived in the same building for four years. You knew it. You know, it's not like there's hundreds of seminarians in this building. There's only like 15 to 20 of them. If one of them's a nut job, you're going to know. You're going to know pretty quick, quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what I, 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 I once again, it, I, I think sometimes lay people get taken aback because they miss these things. But I cannot tell you how many times, you know, uh, Father So-and-so is arrested for raping four children. And you get one of two responses from other priests. Number one, well, I can't believe that. No, he was so holy. He gave he gave money to this like these poor people on the street. Or you get the response where they go, yeah, I knew something was off with them. And you're like, really? Why? Well, 30 years ago, he talked about raping people one time. And you're like... 
And you, that wasn't you, a red flag. That wasn't a red. Nor, do you think normal people just in conversation start talking about raping people? You know, and so that's that's you're right about that. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example, two examples from from our own case. Um, we had two priests of all the priests we knew, two priests show up for to support us in all the court hearings, um, uh, the criminal court hearings. Um, I had a conversation with one priest. This priest came to our house, ate dinner at our house. I've eaten dinner at his house. Friends, I would consider, um, gave me a call and said, hey, look, I support you. Man, what happened to y'all was terrible. I support you. I just have to do so in silence. And I said, then, then I don't want it. Thank you. <laughs> why? why, why? And, and even on the phone was whispering. It's like, who do you think is listening? Who do you think is listening? But that, that you know, and so it, it's hard for me to even say, well, he's a good priest. Because maybe he's never molested anyone before. But how is he a good priest if he can't vocalize support? For victim and victim's family of a priest who confessed to molestation, yeah. right? I mean, there has to be, if this was any other, one of the other crazy things, you know, we, we the Me Too movement was going on, right? Um, you have Epstein's, I mean, everyone's outraged about Epstein's flight list, right? Like how oh, uh, Bill Gates was on there, how dare, blah, blah, blah. But in the same breath, they'll go, I mean, yeah, father so-and-so raped four kids, but I mean, I remember that time at mass. He gave all the single mothers a prayer card. Like, yeah, what? Yeah, <laughs> what? In what world does that make sense, right? But it's because they have, um, uh, you know, they the that that Roman collar privilege. The yeah. moment you put on that Roman collar, it's they're treated differently immediately. Yeah. In our in our last podcast, we spoke about it that that priest priests can be unimpressive men. They could have absolutely nothing that warrants respect, but when the collar gets popped on, it's an immediate undeserved respect. Then they might still be good people, but they are immediately bestowed a respect that they didn't necessarily have to earn because it's the Roman collar. It's the reason why you'll have priests six months out of seminary doing, you know, spiritual advising for married couples that are 40 years old. And you're like, why would you would never go to a 21 year old for marriage counseling, but he has a collar on. So it elevates him, right? Yeah. Uh, there's, a, yeah, and I'll tell you, I, I had made a suggestion to Archbishop Amon years ago about um, how we could combat this going forward. So, you know, our seminaries are open to to pretty much anybody, right? They have to go through the discernment process, and this, that's really kind of what the seminary is supposed to be designed to do to kind of help these people discern a, a vocation to the priesthood. I suggested to him, I said, why don't, why don't we put some type of barriers or limitations to that, saying that anyone under the age of 30 years old cannot be considered for admission to the seminary. So you've got folks who have lived a bit of a life, right? You've got folks who have experienced the secular world and have have made mistakes and have, have overcome them, folks that have lived a very pious life, and they're being called to the seminary. I said, and more importantly, you have a history to go investigate, right? Because mm-hmm. it, somebody just doesn't wake up one day at 30 years old and say, you know what? I think I'm going to rape that kid. Yeah. You know, there's, there, there's a pattern of behavior that these pedophiles or these sexual deviants develop over time. And if you have something to investigate, you have something to look back at, that would help you help that individual discern their calling to the priesthood. And is this best for the church? Is this best for the faithful? Because, I, you know, 
this has been ex- explained to me a while um, a while ago about what's the greatest battle in your life. It's probably the, the spiritual battle, right? The battle for your soul, good versus evil. And when we're who who leads us into this battle? It's our priests. So we kind of look at them as like the military leaders, right? Mm-hmm. I uh, the comparison was made to uh, Navy SEALs or Special Forces, Green Beret folks who you know. If you're going into battle, you want these guys right there with you. They're the ones leading you into battle. Do our priests resemble in any way? In a spiritual battle, the Green Beret, do they in any way resemble the Navy SEALs? Do they look like folks who were going to defend you and lead you in the right path? Leave no man behind. Leave no man behind? <laughs> exactly. Is Are these the leaders for our spiritual battle that we want? And, and if they're not, then... Who are these individuals that we want to lead us into battle? And how are they being prepared? So we really have to look at the seminaries. But when you have bishops who are promoting a certain um, culture that is acceptable to them, whether it's financial improprieties or sexual improprieties or whatever it is that they're uh, working within and they're, 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 I don't know if they're promoting it or they're turning a blind eye to it because they just want to fill up spots in the seminary. You know, you, you, you know, you get what you put in and you, if you allow certain behaviors to continue, you allow certain types of people to flourish in the seminaries. Well, you can't be surprised when you have results like people being harmed. You have folks leaving the church. You have attendance at mass dropping. Well, you have leaders who are not leading. You have leaders who are defending poor behavior, criminal behavior, turning a blind eye. James, I think this is a good segue um, to end off the podcast because you're, you're, you're speaking about there's a problem in leadership. Well, I mean, you, whether you identify as one or not, um, you, you are, we believe that you're a leader in this, in this discussion, in this, um, unfortunate realm, uh, maybe a leader, maybe the leadership role you didn't necessarily want or see yourself in, but you're, you're, you're there and you're doing it and you're doing it well. Um, very short, maybe one minute. Can you please give a message to someone that might be out there, a survivor of clergy sex abuse, maybe in a similar position as you married children, um, job life's going on as normal, but these triggers are happening or maybe they have been happening. What's your what's your one minute pitch to them about resilience and coming forward? Um, we already know that there's hardships, but I mean you're you're battling them, you're overcoming them. What's your what's your message to that person out there? It gets better. It gets better with recognition of what you've been through, and it's not easy. But um, you know, trust in your family. Trust in the love and support of your family. You, you've, if you've, you've been fortunate enough to develop and build that relationship over time, they're there to support you. They're there to love you through this. Um, I think it's, it's more important to, be, uh, to bring attention to what has happened to you, whether it was three weeks ago, 30 years ago, 
it's important to others to promote healing. And I know I personally have found it very helpful in the healing process, knowing that to some small degree perhaps, that my efforts could affect healing in somebody else who's been harmed. And more importantly, can help prevent uh, harm from coming to others into the future just by bringing awareness, making them more aware. I, like I'm not under the, any grand notions that my efforts are going to magically clean up the church you know, wholeheartedly. But if it can help clean up my diocese, if it can help bring aware to local Catholics, and even outside the Catholic community, bring awareness to, to those who have been harmed in, in any aspect of the community, because it's not just occurring in the Catholic Church. This is occurring in schools. It's occurring uh, in hospitals. It's occurring within, you know, the mailman or somebody. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a Catholic priest who's harming somebody. It can happen anywhere. Yes. And, and quite frankly, it's more often happening within the family from a distant relative or a family friend or something like that. So bringing uh, attention to this, that this happens more often than we know, just speak up, talk to somebody, um, and bring yourself to that, that, that position of healing and protection going forward. And, and just knowing that you, by just talking about it, is, is going to be helpful to somebody else. As we conclude this impactful episode of Resilience in the Shadows, our heartfelt gratitude goes out to James Adams for sharing his powerful narrative and insights. James' unwavering resilience and commitment to advocacy has left an enduring impression. We trust that this conversation has addressed some pressing issues surrounding child sexual abuse, with a particular focus on the institutional manipulation. James's experiences underscore the crucial importance of awareness, education, and sustained dedication to prevention. To you, our listeners, we extend our sincere appreciation for joining us on this meaningful journey. If today's episode has resonated with you and you wish to support the vital work undertaken by Tentmakers of Louisiana, consider visiting tentmakers.la. There, you'll find a wealth of resources, information on upcoming initiatives, and opportunities to contribute. The continuation of podcasts like Resilience in the Shadows relies on your support. By making a donation to Tentmakers through the website, you become an integral part of the effort to transform darkness into light. Every contribution helps bring forth more stories like James's, insights, and conversations that foster hope, healing, and justice. Thank you once again for being part of this experience. For those intrigued by James's story and desiring a deeper understanding, consider exploring it further. And until our next episode, take care, stay resilient, and consider being the light in someone's shadows. Together, we can make a lasting difference.